and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. I'm Christine Burns. It was the BBC interviewer Robin Day who once famously infuriated Tory Defence Minister John Knott by referring to him as a here-today, gone-tomorrow politician. The epithet stung, perhaps, because Day was reflecting a truism that seems even more relevant today than in 1982. In reality, many politicians do have a short career in Parliament and are soon forgotten. This is why those politicians with true staying power are so interesting to examine. Sir Gerald Kaufman, my own MP, is one of the latter category. Sir Gerald recently celebrated his 80th birthday in his Manchester Gorton constituency, flanked by crowds of loyal party activists and supporters who turned out for the occasion. Though regularly offered a chair to sit down by well-wishers, the incredibly sprightly octogenarian politely declined, remaining on his feet throughout. The occasion also marked 40 years since Gerald had first won a seat as an MP. Only the Conservative Sir Peter Tapsell has served for a longer continuous period. As an MP, Gerald served as a junior minister in Harold Wilson's 1974 government and was Shadow Home Secretary, among other roles, during Labour's opposition in the 1980s. He also famously wrote for the groundbreaking 1960s satirical show That Was The Week That Was. He's written several books and, as a Jew himself, is one of the leading critics of Israeli policies and the treatment of Arabs in Gaza. Speaking to him at his home in Manchester, I asked what's the secret to all that energy and commitment? I don't know. I just keep going. I've got a lot still to do and my constituents want me to do it, which is the biggest compliment of all. They elected me earlier this year for the 11th time, and they increased my majority, and they seem to want me. And I love my constituency, I really do. It takes me back to the real world, as distinct from the very artificial life in the House of Commons. Is 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 that the secret, that you actually... You do it because you love it rather than that I think some MPs go into the business as, as a career. If I didn't love it, I'd have stopped long ago. I'm not being conceited when I say that I could have gone to the House of Lords whenever I wanted to. But I, I've lived in this house, in this constituency for 27 years. Before that, I lived round the corner I live in the constituency, I'm part of the constituency, though constituents never come to my door with problems, never, they respect that. But they look after me when I had an intruder some time ago in my yard, a neighbour rang up the police without even telling me, this is real life. And that's what I like about it. And I like the human connections. A constituent who was active in the Labour Party at the time once said to me, Gerald, your constituency is your second family. And it's true. You, you said this is real life. And so can I take you to, back to the beginning of that life? You, you were born in 1930. I know that was a very tough time. You grew up in Leeds. What was it like growing up in those days? I was a member of 
what was then called, in a way, perhaps doesn't exist anymore, a working-class family. My father worked in a factory, Montague Burton's tailoring factory. He and my mother had immigrated. They lived in Poland, and they came to Britain as Jewish refugees from Poland. This was before Hitler. And they settled in in Leeds. They had a family, seven children. I was the youngest of seven. Very happy family, brought up with love. We lived in Chapeltown in Leeds, which later became a kind of synonym for poverty. But it wasn't poverty when we lived there. My parents had next to no money. All that came in was my father's wage at the factory, plus a little money that came in when my mother opened a little cloth cloth shop, which went along with my father being a tailor, really. There was no money to go round whatsoever, but we never went hungry, and we always had clothes to wear. My father made all of my suits. I didn't have a suit bought at a shop until I went away to university. It was, I suppose, looking back on it, a particular kind of life, the life of Jews in rather a big Jewish community in Leeds, going to the synagogue, going to the Hebrew school, going, of course, to the local council school and then winning a scholarship to the grammar school, going to the pictures a lot with my pals, going out to the park, etc., etc., etc. It was a nice childhood and I'm grateful I had it. Mm. You you mentioned just then about Hitler and uh, the rise of the Nazis at the time you were growing up. I mean, were you very aware of what was going on in Europe? It was impossible not to be aware partly because of course most of both of my parents families were still in Poland though some of them had emigrated elsewhere more or less at the time that my parents emigrated but some of them had gone to America some living in New York and some living in Florida though of course in those days you didn't travel to and fro, the very idea of getting on a ship and going to America, that was beyond fantasy. I'm not exaggerating. As I say, we were never poor, but you didn't do that kind of thing in those days. I remember when one of my sisters, I had five sisters, I remember when one of my sisters actually went abroad to Belgium. I still remember the town Blankenburg. That was a huge development in our family lives. Of course we knew about the Nazis. Of course we knew that they were spreading out all over Europe. The rest of my family, the older members of my family, understood the true significance of that. I was just a small boy, Mm. and I heard about it. And when the war broke out, I had a map cut out from the newspaper on the kitchen wall, and I traced the front in the fighting. But 
I didn't really understand it. And although I heard about concentration camps, I don't think I understood what they meant. But I followed the war news avidly. I really was very interested indeed. But then you couldn't avoid it, could you? Uh, If you sat in... Although we had a house with two other rooms on the ground floor, we all lived in the kitchen. And there was a wireless, not radio, a wireless up on a shelf in the kitchen. And we'd sit there and we'd listen to the news. And I remember Churchill broadcasting when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union. So obviously it was impossible, especially once the war broke out, not to know that it was all going on. But I'm not claiming that I had a profound understanding But I followed the war, and of course I knew when it was over because we had a school holiday. Mm. Obviously, Britain itself has had its own uh, run-ins with anti-Semitism. What kind of influences do you think that discrimination had on you and your family back then? My family were very Jewish. I don't mean by that that they were obsessively Jewish. My father didn't dress up all in black and with a beard and so on. Not like the ultra-Orthodox Jews. I'm not denigrating them, but my father was an Orthodox Jew. And and that was that. And we, I had to go to synagogue on the Sabbath, and I wasn't allowed to go to the pictures on the Sabbath or anything like that. I went to the Hebrew school, and I had a bar mitzvah at a local synagogue all of that. In Chapeltown, where we lived, it was a very big Jewish community, and so one didn't encounter anti-Semitism there because one's life was lived on the whole among Jews, though in the local council school just across the road from where we lived, there were a majority who were not Jewish, but there was never any anti-Semitism, the first time I experienced anti-Semitism was when I went away to Leeds Grammar School where there was a small proportion of pupils who were Jewish. The very large majority were not. Some of the boys were anti-Semitic and bullied me and other Jewish boys. And Some of the masters, I'm afraid, were not as helpful as they might have been. Mm. Now, after the war, you you left school and you went on to Oxford. You you studied philosophy, politics and economics. Did you have a, a clear vision of what you wanted to be? Not really, no. I knew that I was having opportunities which were very unusual for a boy of my background and upbringing. In those days, in the late 1930s, the early 1940s, it was a very, very class-ridden society in this country, and you stuck in your class. Mm. And winning a scholarship to the grammar school meant that I stepped out of my class into a different kind of class, which I was not Mm. familiar with. 
I remember, for example, when I was in the sixth form at school and we went out. I don't know why. It must have been some celebration of something that happened at the school. We went out to a local hotel. I still remember the name of the hotel, the Hotel Metropole, for dinner. And I sat there with all kinds of cutlery in front of me that I didn't know the use of. At home, we were very well fed. My mother cooked all of our meals. But at home, you had a knife, a fork and a spoon. And that was it. At this, there were all kinds of knives and forks and spoons scattered around in profusion around one's plate. And a school friend had to show me what was used for what. Let's just come back to your career then. You you became a political journalist at the Daily Mirror. You uh, also wrote for the New Statesman. And then you became Labour Party Parliamentary Press Liaison Officer. Um, so there was a bit of both there. You were becoming a writer, a journalist and, and a politician as well. When I left Oxford, I decided, I'd, by then I had decided that I wanted to be a journalist. And after a short period in which I did another job at the Fabian Society, the little socialist organisation, which meant my moving to London. I'd got this job on the Daily Mirror, and that was a really, really lucky break for me because the Daily Mirror was the popular newspaper in this country at the time. At its peak, it sold five million. It had huge political influence and was admired and respected. And I had this not just a job, but this education in how to write clear, concise English. It's one of the best educations I've ever had, as good as anything I had at school or university. And I, first of all, was there as a researcher. Then I was there as a writing journalist. And just when I was offered the job of political correspondent of the New Statesman, I was told they were just about to appoint me chief leader writer, which if I'd gone in that direction would probably have meant a long and possibly distinguished career in popular journalism. But then I was offered the job in the New Statesman, which in those days was an extremely influential magazine both within the Labour Party but more widely because its cultural pages were very highly respected. And it was while I worked at the New Statesman that Harold Wilson, who was by then the Prime Minister of the Labour Party, which I joined when I was still at school in Leeds, asked me to go and work for him. The job was given this posh title of parliamentary press liaison officer. But what it really meant was that I was the Prime Minister's political press advisor and linked with the press. In those days, there was a very clear distinction between civil service and politics at 10 Downing Street. And Harold Wilson 
wanted a political link with the press on behalf of his position as leader of the Labour Party rather than as Prime Minister. And the civil service wouldn't do that for him. So he found me, and that began five years in 10 Downing Street, where I was very close indeed to the Prime Minister. I was with him everywhere. Whenever he travelled, I went with him. And I learned an absolutely enormous amount about British politics there and how the machine and how the system worked. Before you even got to there, of course, you'd already stood for uh, election in, in a seat down in Kent. When I was at Oxford, I was active in the Labour Club and became chairman of the Oxford University Labour Club. And one of my friends who lived in Bromley, just outside London, told me that they were looking for a candidate for Bromley. It was an unwinnable seat for Labour. There was no chance of winning it. But I was 22 years old. And if at 22 years old somebody thinks that you could be a parliamentary candidate, that itself is quite an achievement. So I went down there and they chose me. And I fought that election in 1955. And uh, as I say, I knew that I had no chance whatever of winning. It was a very safe Conservative seat. The Member of Parliament was Harold Macmillan, who was then the Foreign Secretary. But it it was very, very useful tuition for me Mm. to be able to fight an election, not to have the false hope that you were going to win, but to learn all the procedures was very valuable. And then, because although I came from Leeds, I was living in London, I'd become known in that area of the country. And I was approached to stand for Gillingham in Kent, which was a marginal seat. There was a Conservative majority of 2,800. So it was the kind of seat that you could win if there was a swing towards your party. But in the 59 election, there wasn't a swing to Labour, there was a swing from Labour. So I was beaten by 7,000. And I gave up thought of standing as a parliamentary candidate for a while. And then when I was working at number 10, the opportunity came to have my name put forward to be candidate for the... Ardwick constituency in Manchester, which was a Labour constituency, though not with a big majority. And I was chosen. In those days, the selection of parliamentary candidates wasn't by all the people who were members of the Labour Party in the constituency, but was by a much smaller group called the General Management Committee. And there were 23 members on that committee. It was a small party. And I was chosen by 12 votes to 11, a majority of one. But I was chosen and I became the candidate. And even in the 1970 election, which was an election which went badly for the Labour Party, I was elected. 
I was going to say the, the 1970s were a pretty turbulent time in Britain. I remember growing up through that. The, there was the, the economy, there were the, the, the strikes, the three-day week, all the power blackouts, uh, and the oil prices going sky high. Could we see that kind of unrest again, do you think? I mean, for instance, why aren't people rioting about the new government's cuts? I very much hope that we shan't see that kind of turbulence because it's very unpleasant for those taking part in it. We've had quite difficult times in this country, and it's got to be said those difficult times were basically when there were Conservative governments mm. in power. Ted Heath, who was by no means the worst of the bunch when it comes to Conservative leaders, blundered into this confrontation with the miners. Mm. And that meant a very great shortage of fuel, and it meant a limit on the amount of electricity you could use. It meant that factories, as you pointed out, for a period were only open for three days in, in the week. It meant heavy unemployment, and the electorate didn't like it, and that's why they kicked Heath out, not by a very big margin, but they kicked him out in February 1974 and a Labour minority government was formed and I became a member of it. And we had a quite a lot of turbulence under the Labour government simply because there was a serious economic crisis and the Labour government wasn't, it has to be said, all that good at handling it because there were so many things coming at it at once, including a lot of industrial turmoil. They had a pay limit, a limit on wages. And because of that, there were strikes. And then, of course, they had to devalue the pound, which in those days was a very big deal. Nowadays, nobody knows what the exchange value of the pound is. It changes from day to day. But in those days, it was a very, very, very fixed relationship to the dollar. And devaluing the pound against the dollar was not only economic problem, it was regarded as a sign of national shame. And there was this famous line from Howard Wilson. In oh, <laughs> I was there when he wrote that. I was because Harold used to write his speeches, not like party leaders now who've got speechwriter upon speechwriter upon speechwriter. Harold Wilson wrote all his own speeches, he dictated them to shorthand typists. And he felt the responsibility for the devaluation, which he hadn't wanted to do. And he'd heard that. Some people were worried that devaluing the pound meant that the purchasing power of the pound in this country would go down. Not simply that the value of the pound against the dollar would go down. There wasn't a euro in those days. And, and therefore, he decided that he would address the nation on the radio and he would tell them, explain to them, that 
the pound wouldn't buy as much in the United States, but it would buy exactly the same as it had done the day before, as far as shops in this country were concerned, and peg your mortgage and all the rest of the reasons why people need to spend money. And so he had this sentence, the pound in your pocket or your purse or in your bank will not be devalued. And he was trying to do it as a reassurance, but it certainly was a big blunder. I I was part of it. I participated in drafting that with him and one or two other members of his staff. So although he said it, I was as guilty as he was for having framed the sentence. You said a moment ago that uh, it was a, a minority Labour government. W- was there an attempt at that time to, to form a coalition with the, what were then the Liberals? When the Conservatives lost the election, which was held on February 28, 1974, the Conservatives were the biggest party. They had 301 seats and Labour had 296. So he spent the weekend trying to cobble together a a coalition with the Liberal Party, but the Liberals wouldn't do it. And so, after the weekend, on the Monday, the Prime Minister, Ted Heath, admitted defeat to the Queen, and the Queen sent for Harold Wilson. And nobody thought of having a coalition. And Harold Wilson decided to form a minority government and then to keep going to see if he could win a majority, which is what he did in October 1974. Not a big majority, but a majority that kept him going until loss of by-elections meant it went into a minority. But it was... A government which was led by the biggest party. And we shall see what happens now, but I think it was a very big blunder for all concerned, for the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats to have this coalition, because the Liberal Democrats seem to be abandoning day by day things they promised they would do or promised they would oppose. Do you think there's a chance they'll be wiped out come the next election? I think that the Conservatives are always going to be a big political party in this country. Even when Labour won its huge landslide in 1997, the Conservatives still had 150 members of, mm. uh, of Parliament. And basically, whatever attempts are made to change the electoral system in the forthcoming referendum... Basically, Britain is a two-party country. The Liberal Democrats, or the Liberal parties they used to be, used to be a very tiny party. And then with the creation of the Liberal Democrats, when the Liberals merged with a break away from the Labour Party during some of the worst days of the Labour Party, and form the Social Democrat Party, which then merged with the Liberal Democrats. The Liberal Democrats started having more members of Parliament, and they've now got around 50. But I believe that they have bought their participation in 
being the government very, very dearly because they promised all kinds of things. And now day by day, they're doing the opposite. And I think the next time the electorate has a chance of delivering a verdict, they're going to have quite a lot of difficulty in explaining why they're standing on their heads on so many issues. Mm. I gather that the Labour Party has actually gained a lot of uh, members from the Liberals as well. Since the election, the Labour Party has gained a lot of members in this constituency. I get reports every few days of another batch in one of my wards, Wally Range, for example. They told me last weekend that just in a few days they got 25 more members. But we mustn't be complacent. We're in opposition and we didn't have a good general election result. We lost 90 seats. We're still a very, very formidable political party with more than 250 members of parliament. But whatever happens to the Liberal Democrats, it's not going to be easy for Labour to win an election again, though I obviously very much want it to. Mm. Gerald Kaufman there, talking to me at his home in Manchester. Coming up in part two... The Minister for War was sleeping with a prostitute who was also sleeping with a Russian spy. And where did Labour go wrong? I think that some of the things they did with regard to civil liberties were a a mistake. You're listening to Just Plain Sense. And if you'd like to hear more from almost 70 programmes, you'll find the show online at podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. Look out soon for part two in this in-depth interview with Gerald Kaufman. But for now, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. <laughs>